Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Talk about silence, which seems an oxymoron. But, yes. I, you know, I think we should persevere and, and try to upend this saucy word, which silence, I'd just like to foreground, is a concept. Mm. It's a proposition that silence in an absolute sense does not exist as, you know, John Cage apocryphally, but, you know, actually uh, pointed out when he entered a soundproof booth at, at Harvard and at realized that the, the breathing, the heart, the autonomic nervous system, there are ranges of sound that are innate. And so silence, the absence of sound, does not, is not something that exists at the same level that a table or, or a giraffe does. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a... But, you know, we can bracket that and move forward. The uh, this word comes from celere. Uh, celio would be I. And then, you know, it's that Latin kind of word where it's I did it, I ran, I love, amo. Uh, in this case, the word is, and this is kind of like almost a little poem, means I am to be or I, I be quiet or be silent. And then these two knots, not to speak about. And then mm. this curious one, not to function. So these huh. are different meanings that I found for that Latin word. And what's interesting is that these words are very connected to our bodies, to being quiet, to silent, to note not speaking, and then to be not in function. But they're intimate to what we are as beings. And it was in the old French carryover into English, which is first recorded in the 1380s, that you have the meaning absence of sound. And uh, that also is the time, and this was principally through an Oxford Don, a Protestant dissident by the name of Wycliffe or Wycliffe, Mm. who uh, produced a number of papers and introduced a number of aspects of silence. The first is absence of sound. And then also he introduced to silence as in to put to death. The Uh euphemism to silence was also introduced by Wycliffe. This, this would seem to point toward what I construe as, as a certain kind of war on silence. I believe that there's this idea of a, of a pure silence, of the absence of sound silence, the vacuum silence, mm. the nihilization silence, which is an absolute one. Versus a relative one, a relatively quiet, relatively silent versus an absolute silence. And a difference between an edgy silence and a fuzzy silence. 
a creature <laughs> silence. So that's one thing that I want to just quietly, you know, float out there. And then the other thing is the use of silence. Another meaning of silence that we have is to not allow to speak, to, to squash speech. And that may be attributed to William Shakespeare, the introduction of that use. Hmm. And it's from his play Measure for Measure. So, you know, plus or minus 1600. Uh, and, and, and this is the phrase to cause not to speak. And the quotation is, is this. Silence that fellow. I would he had some cause to prattle for himself. So he's uh, in this instance, it's the isolating of somebody to silence them, stop speaking, and that he would prattle for himself, like go off and talk to himself. And then for me, it seems to me that Shakespeare, who posited this use of silence, is actually pointing to Samuel Beckett, the great... <laughs> Uh, connoisseur, the great pontificator of silence, or one of a few of the 20th century. Mm. Yeah, it happens that I'm reading Measure for Measure. I'm I'm always reading Shakespeare and uh, try to always be reading Shakespeare, and I just lately started uh, Measure for Measure, and as I understand the plot, there's a king who's a very nice guy king, a very lenient king. And he's starting to realize things are not going well. He's, a, he's like a parent that's spoiling the children. So he goes off to a monastery and uh, he puts this real asshole in charge of the kingdom. A guy he knows is gonna like lay down the law. So that's, you know, I've just read the first five pages of it. So. Anyway, it sort of fits in with this image of silence that fellow, you know, that Shakespeare seems to be saying, well, maybe sometimes you need a really a strict, tough guy to be in charge of a kingdom. Oh, and the crazy thing is, who is the first person he oppresses? This, this, uh, the new kind of king regent, the guy who's in charge of being king, is a guy who's gotten a woman pregnant and has not married her, which is what Shakespeare himself did. He married his wife when she was some months pregnant. So Shakespeare is punishing, he's having him, some guy stand in for himself being punished. I don't know what that means. But you think uh, he could tap into that situation? Yeah. I mean, he seems Why? to be finding a person that he can really identify with. Yeah. Uh, when I married my wife, she was seven months pregnant. Oh, okay. Or eight, eight months, actually. Yeah, it was a month later she gave hmm. birth to our daughter. So that, so silence, and and it uh, includes measure for measure, and and I would also posit that there's another kind of silence that's within hmm. the dimension of definition. And that is theatrical silence. That is mm. the silence where you have the, the word silence in parentheses. I think that is a unique th silence that potentially could have a real future 
in this mm. discussion and in its history. Um, Sam, the, the history can you, going forward. Yeah. Can you um, say, well, you mentioned John Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, the, uh, the, 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 the heretic. Um, what, what was the, the context? He wasn't a heretic. He was a dissident. I don't think he he paid. I don't. I don't think he paid the ultimate price. I don't think he was silenced. No, but he was responsible for the Lollard controversy in England. He was a disciple of Jan Hus, hmm. who was um, burned at the stake as a way of resolving the papal schism of the 14th century. But. Hmm. What did you mention in terms of John Wycliffe and silence? Uh, I found that quite interesting, but um, it, it went in one ear and out the other. Yeah, I mean, these French words were already floating around um, in the system. You know, they came over in the Norman conquest. And, but Wycliffe had access, I believe, to a lot of paper, a lot of parchment. You know, he's working at, uh, at Oxford and was able to nail down a lot of these words that were floating around from the French. And I, I have a broader broader issue with the term silence in, in that use of an absolute silence. It, the idea, for example, of absence of sound, mm. absence and silence rhyme, but they also <laughs> have an etymological rhyme. Absence also comes over from the old French in the 14th century. Huh. The Latin word on which it's based is a far more um, kind of gruntled word or, you know, closer to our ha It means be away from. Absence means to be away from. Hmm. Whereas hmm. there's an absolute absence, the sense of a vacuum. There's another word that I would throw in with that, but uh, I don't want to um, overweigh that. I want to save that. Oh, yeah. Can, um, can you tell us about the Lollard controversy, uh, Andrew? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't remember that much about it. I do know that um, uh, the Lollards believed in a uh, priesthood of the laity. They also oh. um, advocated for um, a vernacular translation of the Bible. Hmm. Um, they get, tended to be very critical of um, Catholic wealth and, and hierarchy. Hmm. Uh, that's about all I can remember from divinity school. But uh, I just wondered if uh, Wycliffe had written anything specifically on silence of a theological nature. They're kind of like proto-Protestants. Very much so. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And where are they? Are they French? Well, it began in Bohemia, and Jan ah. Hus burned. Then the um, the writings ended up of Jan Hus ended up in Oxford. That's where John Wycliffe encountered them, and then they were disseminated in, throughout England. Huh. Do you think that the Lollards had had a little taste of fourth estate business? Were they <laughs> were they made up of loafers and wanderers and outcasts? <laughs> and, or the bourgeoisie? I mean, usually the the part of the real Protestant Reformation, according to whatever the you know cliche of history, was connected to uh, early capitalism. That's right. And sort of, I would say, you know, early abstraction. <laughs> 
early abstraction and the use of uh, and the introduction of abstract terms, which you need in order to manipulate money. <laughs> so just to add another direction, and then we could, we could choose any um, of what's been put forward. But I was wondering when I was thinking about silence about the, and I don't have an answer to this. I was wondering about the moment when silence uh, became a, a punishment. Huh. You know, she's giving you the silent treatment or sit in huh. your room silently. Um, hmm. at, at what point was it reconfigured into some punitive um, sentence? Uh, it, would be, it would be interesting to, um, to trace that huh. historically if, if it were at all possible. The, no. the one thing I would put forward is the practice of shunning, hmm. yes. which was visited on the English landlords uh, in Ireland. Huh. The English would come periodically to their land holdings or uh, circumstances of business. And what the Irish people in a village would do is pretend they weren't there. They wouldn't acknowledge them. Hmm. I read this thing once in the uh, Whole Earth Catalog. It said, if a woman walks on the bus, I think it said a woman, and talks to the bus driver, and the bus driver doesn't reply to her, everyone on the bus will decide that she's insane. Like, if someone isn't, you know, part of the conversation, then they start seeming insane. (laughs) I don't know, never forgotten that. I have that experience whenever I go to a country, and uh, that means anywhere else in the world, I go to a country where I don't understand the language. Uh-huh. Yeah. I feel a, a saran wrap. <laughs> a little bit of saran wrap around me. Yeah. Bubble. I've just been in New York City for a week. And on the subway, you some it's pretty, it's fairly often somehow, or maybe because I'm a big eavesdropper of conversations, and there'll be like a family of tourists, they're all speaking Finnish, and you're somehow like just on the edge of them. So you're it's almost like a foreign country, of course, is visiting you, and you have also that similar sense of being kind of shunned or silenced or frozen out kind of but it's kind of fascinating too <laughs> especially finnish my goodness that's a challenging language yeah finnish i gave as an example of the most obscure language actually this this family of four that i was on the subway with the other day i was I, they had sort of strange angular features they were very tall i decided for sure that they were finnish and then i realized no they're speaking french they're speaking the one language I sort of understand. And I was trying to work up the courage to speak to them. But I found myself, what's the word, confined to silence. You know, I looked into it, and interestingly, um, on the topic of um, silence as a punishment, I did do a little research, and I discovered that um, enforced silence in penitentiaries was a product of the 1820s. experimental form of punishment that was um, inaugurated at the Auburn prison in Auburn, New York. As an alternative uh, to and modification of the Pennsylvania system of solitary confinement, which is gradually replaced in the United States 
from the 1820s onward. I thought that was interesting to answer my own question about when silence becomes um, a form of punishment. Mm -hmm. I think de Tocqueville writes about that. Oh, yeah? Correct? Oh, yeah, because de Tocqueville came to the United States to write to um, to learn about the penal system. Oh, that's right. I forgot that. Yeah. That was the premise for um, democracy in America. Hmm. What hmm. does he write, Sam? Do you have a recollection? No, I don't. So what more? Well, I can go through my vast research on silence. I mean, today I was in Woodstock waiting for the bus to come back to Phoenicia, and there's a uh, book exchange next to where the bus picks you up. And in this book exchange, there's always like five copies of the Bhagavad Gita translated by Lars Martin Fossey, F-O-S-S-E, I think it's pronounced Fossey. And so I thought, well, yeah, the uh, Bhagavad Gita, silence, makes sense. And, you know, there is a danger, no offense to Sam, that, you know, it's going to be overly Western, our uh, approach to silence. <laughs> and I looked and looked through the Bhagavad Gita. I could not find silence, kind of shockingly. But the part that I opened to is chapter six, which is in this, I think it's a pretty crappy translation, is... Um, uh, is titled Meditation, it says, the yogi should always discipline his self while remaining in solitude, alone, with his mind and self under control, without expectations, without possessions. And then further on, it's a quotation in the Bhagavad Gita, as a lamp sheltered from the wind does not flicker, close quote. This is the well-known simile of the yogi who has controlled his mind and practices the discipline of the self. So it's, it's interesting that it comes very close to using the word silence. It seems to be conveying the concept of silence, but never quite says it. It says solitude alone with his mind and self under control, like... Uh, a lamp that doesn't flicker, but, you know, there, there is a place in the Bible, and I looked through the whole book, you know, just flipping through it, trying to find silence, couldn't find it. It's like I mean, trying to find laughter in the New Testament. Ha ha! Yeah. What is it that Kurt Vonnegut said, uh, Jesus makes one joke, and it's not a very good joke, it's, it's a pun, uh, on this rock, I will found my church. Because, uh, because Peter means rock, I think in kind of every language. So Peter is like the, the rock. You know, it's, it's a pretty, it's like a whatever, second graders joke. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there is a place in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, you always have to act. There's no life without action. You can't escape action. So even when he's telling you to become, I mean, he's really telling Arjuna, you must become a yogi or it's best to become a yogi. But even there, he, he seems a little fatalistic about the possibilities of true silence. Because like Sam was saying, you know, you're alone in your cave. You notice that you're breathing and ergo silence is impossible. 
a I little know. bit Thank like Buddha Dharma. Buddha hmm. Dharma meditating in the cave for five years until he could hear the ants scream. <laughs> right. Seems to me there's some famous yogi who says, like, when I walk on the grass, I hear it scream. Maybe it's uh, Mayor Baba. Yeah, yeah. It could be that as one advances in spiritual life, your hearing gets better. You hear more and more, not less and less, because you're more and more silent. Uh -huh. So you notice smaller and smaller sounds. Yeah, or maybe your sensitivity to, to the inherent suffering. Mentality mm. is, is more acute. I would think that the development of the senses is towards synesthesia, is for their coincidence. Huh. And that the and that the far from the candle being sheltered, that the the shelters are all thrown off. And huh. we actually can see fully and hear and touch and hmm. smell in a in an infinite way huh. it seems to be what uh, Walt Whitman is saying it seems to be his general attitude I once read this book called cosmic consciousness by this guy Buck he was a uh, disciple of Whitman like Whitman had disciples as if he was a guru and Buck goes through the example of every person who ever attained cosmic consciousness in the history of the world. I actually read this entire book, like in 1977. And, uh, you know, Buddha, Pascal, uh, you know, Jesus, I think. He has like a little section on all these people. And then at the end, he explains why Whitman is the most advanced of all of them. And, and it was something like, I think... I mean, or anyway, that is the feeling I get, what was Sam was saying, that sense of kind of hyper uh, sense activation. Yeah, two of my, probably two of my favorite short poems are about this phenomenon. And huh. one of them is John Ashbery's short poem, Some Trees, oh. from the 1950s. And the other one is a Wallace Stevens poem, The Snowman. Oh. Do you want to hear one or the other? I think it would be nice. I want to, I want to hear the Ashbury poem. Sure. <laughs> Some Trees by John Ashbury. And this was uh, the title track of his first collection, published in the 1950s. Oh, the one he won the Younger Yale yeah. Poets Award. Exactly. Yeah, where Auden wasn't going to award it that year. And then somebody, I think it might have been O'Hara, you know, hit, said, hey, you know, Ashbury submitted a manuscript and then Auden circled back and uh, pulled it and awarded Ashbury <laughs> this uh, prize. So, here's some trees. <clears throat> These are amazing. Each joining a neighbor as though speech were a still performance. Arranging by chance to meet as far this morning from the world as agreeing with it. You and I are suddenly with the trees try to tell us we are, that their merely being there means something, that mm -hmm. soon we may touch, love, explain. And glad not to have invented such comeliness, we are surrounded, a silence already filled with noises, a canvas on which emerges a chorus of smiles, a winter morning, placed in a puzzling light and moving, 
Our days put on such reticence. These accents seem their own defense. Mm. But it really is an opening of the uh, opening of, of the world. Um, in this moment, um, the, the poet, I imagine, is, is laying with a, a lover or soon-to-be lover under these beautiful winter trees. Oh. And the, um, the, the, uh, the world opens in some pretty surprising ways. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's really a good point that somehow the only way to speak about silence, it suddenly seems, is through poetry. Which I guess the Bhagavad Gita also is, come to think of it. Sparrow, when you write your poems, do you incorporate silence somehow? I mean, that was one of my notes that I made in my notebook. You know, how did I put it? In some very minimal, typically minimal way. Silence after poems <laughs> is what I wrote. I mean, I feel that when I recite my poems, that what I'm interested in doing is creating silences, certain silences, or I suppose like noting what silence is produced by what poem you know my poems are very short they end before anyone expects them to end even even if you know that they're really short and um and then i kind of savor the silence and i try to see what kind of silence i've created i mean it's more in performance that i feel that but i suppose a little bit on the page you know ted berrigan my mentor of poetry said uh, he defined a poem as, you know, a piece of writing with white space around it, and and so the white space kind of kind of carves the poem. The poem carves the white space, and there is a kind of a kind of a interaction between the the emptiness of the page and the and the words on the page. That's I wish I could remember one of my poems to recite it and see. What kind of silence it would create? What I what I would posit perhaps is also maybe an analogy that a that a poem, the way you're describing it, has a little bit of the qualities of, of a tower of silence, hmm. which, uh, by the way, is is one of the attributes of silence. Is it characterizes these towers that the Pharisees huh. build, and on which are laid there dead hmm wow structures in uh, northern india oh. see i'm trying to get back at sparrow i think sparrow took a jab at me and said that all my references <laughs> to silence would be stodgy and western <laughs> <laughs> yeah i really apologize for that well you, you were feeling the pharisees are silence. fascinating you know they're these great hives of vultures that feed off the um dead pharisees it's beautiful. Are you sure it's right? The Pharisees? Aren't the Pharisees in ancient Israel? Bible, the New Testament. Yeah, the Sadducees. I think it's the Pharisees. That's what I, I thought it was the Pharisees. I thought that's what they're called. I don't know. What? The Pharisees, the, uh, Pharisees. the Zoroastrians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Zoroastrian cult, for sure. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was one night in. Um, Bombay when it was still called Bombay and I was in like the Farsi neighborhood and I walked by these kind of wild-looking uh, Zoroastrian temples as I wandered around looking for food 
Um, Sparrow, I liked what you said earlier about the, the whiteness around the poem. And it made me think of how I've always interpreted the, or experienced rather, the dashes in Emily Dickinson's poetry. Uh-huh, yeah. Sure, at the end of a line or at the end of a poem, um, pointing to the the white space, pointing into the uh, the void and silence. Yeah. I think famously within, uh, within poetry in the 20th century, arguably, is uh, Mallarmé speaks of the graphalectic sense of the whiteness of the page it's one of his common sayings or you know one of his attitudes toward the poem hmm. the poem yeah i mean i yeah i guess i feel that there's kind of a you know that i'm i have to think about the whiteness when i write a poem you know that not consciously but it's sort of there somewhere my, I, I mean, this is the one poem I can remember. Whenever somebody says, you want to read a poem, this is the only poem of mine. I've written something like, I don't know, 17,000 poems, but I can never really remember them, partly because there's so many of them. But this is the one I can remember, but I'm not sure I have the title right. I think it's called Poem. This poem replaces all my previous poems. Nice. I felt the darkness was stabbed at that moment. You felt stabbed. The silence was glint of the pickaxe in the moonlight. (laughs) Yeah, there is a kind of weird violence to these tiny poems. Like there is, I was going to say with Emily Dickinson, those dashes are kind of violent to me anyway. It's like she's not just pointing to the silence. She's kind of like... It's like in Psycho, when that guy has a knife and he's stabbing Janet Leigh. You know? yeah. She's stabbing into the silence, feels to me. One, one thing I picked up from what you transmitted of Ashbury, Andrew, is this idea of the, the silence already filling with noises, mm-hmm. which strikes me as, a, as something that Beckett uh, would resonate uh, with, you know, and would and sort of set that wave in motion in through the West, Sparrow, is <laughs> he thought of, of words as uh, a form of stain on the silence. Hmm. Um, hmm. These And these noises staining the silence. If you want, I could read you a, uh, a quotation from, from Beckett. Yeah. I would love that, too. Yeah. And this is, I think this is good. So then what? Or what occurs when you have nothing left to say? No, no, oh wait, this is separate. See, you guys, I have a secret here. I have something called a word's end. And it's a course proposal. And it actually begins with Beckett, and it has all to do with silence. Hmm. Um, Yeah... It's a, it's terrific. It's really a terrific course, and the reading list, which I want to read to you, mm. is a like a core sample of silence through the 20th century, actually. So I was lucky to find it. I never taught this course, huh. but Beckett writes, and what has become of the wish to know? It is gone. The heart is gone. The head is gone. No one feels anything. 
hmm. asks anything, seeks anything, says anything, hears anything. There is only silence. Hmm. What is that from? Do you know? Uh, that's from text for nothing. Oh. <laughs> 1950. I mean, another thing to me about Beckett is he's really funny. And I, I think people sort of ignore that or sort of forget that about him. And the silence often functions as a kind of punchline or sometimes as the lead into the joke where the, where the statement is the punchline. The, the, the humor wouldn't work without the silence, I think. Part of Beckett's epiphany that he experienced in Dunleary, in the jetty in Dunleary, south of, of Dublin. Dunleary rhymes with Soleri, Soleri, which means uh, I be quiet, <laughs> uh, was very much based on Charlie Chaplin. Mm -hmm. The idea of the tramp, the down and outer, the guy who can't get a job, you know, who's not fit for working, or, mm. AKA, or you know, a.k.a. a poet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and in fact, Sparrow, I believe that Beckett <laughs> himself felt, you know, are, is my work tragic or is it comic mm. in relation to Godot? And for him, the two are the same mm -hmm. because they all, they, because they both, pierce through our habits of thought and mm. behavior and and sleep mm -hmm. and the kind of humor he does i would say as i experience it is you know it's tragic humor it, you know it comes you know i've got a carrot you hungry yeah i've got a carrot in my pocket you know that it's it's funny and very uh, pathetic, you know, really tragic, you know, if all you have to eat is a carrot. But somehow he gets both, you know, so even if it is purely comic, which I could, ex I could experience it that way, then uh, it's a type of, of comedy that, you know, that silences one with its profundity. Yeah, dig it. Sometimes that's all Beckett had to eat during the war when he was in hiding mm -hmm. in the south of France after being turned, uh, I don't want to say fingered, uh, no, uh, after being identified mm -hmm. uh, by one of his co-resistors, you know, under torture by the Gestapo. Yeah, you know, I, and uh, he and his wife had to take off, you know, etc. I mean, I see Waiting for Godot as all about being in the uh, underground resistance to the Nazis, which Beckett really was, and which these guys, you know, Vladimir and Estragon, they're kind of like revolutionaries, but with the revolution subtracted from them, you know, just taken out of context, but, but with that kind of peripheral... You know, they're outsiders in a place they don't know, waiting to meet their contact. I mean, that's what it, you are when you're a spy working against the Nazis. Not that I'm an expert on it, but it's how I picture it. Well, certainly 
I would say that Estragon's speech and and the speech, you know, that they're that they are poets, mm. mm-hmm. is one way of positing it. But I would certainly say that they're members of Thoreau's Fourth Estate. Mm-hmm. Right. Tramps. Tramps. And we forgot, you know, when you mentioned Charlie Chaplin, like I hadn't thought of the whole concept of the silent movie. I think it's in uh, the uh, autobiography, the the early memoir of uh, of Sartre. It's called Words in English, uh, about his early childhood. He says that uh, the silent movies were the best movies. After the movies started talking, they they declined. And and my dad watches on Sunday. They have on Turner Classic Movies, I think. Uh-huh. They have silent Sundays. So it was just Sunday last night, and my dad was watching, I think, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, actually. And it's just, it is an interesting, I don't know, fact that movies began silent, but that they weren't silent because somebody was playing the piano or there would be a um, an orchestra in some cases. Yeah, but it sort of swallows up imagination uh, at a certain level. Where you're doing that last bit of reconstruction, it's also reminiscent of Jack Spicer Hmm. uh, in North Beach, who was very happy to to hang out in bars and so on and so forth. And then the jukebox came in, and he said the jukebox ruined the bar scene. That's funny because, you know, I did lots of research in a very unsystematic way about 433, uh, John Cage's famous piece of silent music that we're kind of walking around as we talk about silence. So it's 433. It's typically done as four minutes and 33 seconds of silence where someone traditionally sits in front of a piano and doesn't play it. And one of the stories I heard about um, Cage is that he was traveling across country and he was kept stopping in diners and the jukeboxes were driving him crazy. So he wanted to create a silent piece of music to replace the noise of the jukebox. Hmm. And then it came to pass because the... uh, a sort of side group of Sonic Youth called Chichoni, Chichoni, I forget what it's called. Uh, they they recorded a song that was completely silent, and you can download it from iTunes for ninety nine cents, and uh, uh, you get nothing. <laughs> And then it became kind of a, what's the word, legal issue. The people were suing them. <laughs> but, you know, they did it in honor of John Cage. Yeah. And uh, it really became a song, you know, an actual song that maybe you could even play on a jukebox. The that one thing silent. about the Cage piece is that it's not actually about, it's the absence, it's about the absence of silence. Mm. The non-existence of silence. It's, yeah. What do you mean? Well, I mean, there is no such thing as silence. You can't experience the definition of silence is absence of sound, or at least that in that in that 
as I've said, there's a war on silence. There's a silent war on silence that's going on <laughs> around us. And, you know, it's time to uh, hitch up your trousers, and, you know. Like, like when you actually hear 433, because there's actually a guy in Woodstock who every year arranges, I think, on John Cage's birthday or on the anniversary of when it, because when it premiered in Woodstock, the 433 was first played in uh, the Maverick uh, Center just outside of Woodstock. So it's every year they do it in Woodstock. And so I've, I've heard it a number of times, maybe four or five times. Uh, 433 and you know one the way you normally experience it is there's just lots of little sounds that people make as they shift in their chairs someone coughs you hear someone sniffling you know there's all sorts of tiny sounds and that becomes a kind of um, composition kind of found composition an orchestra definitely that's the that's that's what he's doing for sure right I'll but I mean, I've I've experienced it the other way too. Like there was one year that that they did it, and it seemed like there were a lot of people there who were meditators, and it was in a a room. They typically do it in this very quiet room where you can't hear the street sounds. And <laughs> like there was one year where it was really really silent and really kind of profound and really kind of Buddhistic, and it kind of like took you to another level. And it was silent, or pretty much silent. You know, like sometimes the silence is the foreground, and sometimes it's the background. At least that's my experience hearing it. I have a question, if I, <laughs> and that is, can silence be repeated? Ha <laughs> ha! That's a good question. Can silence be repeated? <laughs> Maybe it's possible. It would take a vast technology. You, you know, it depends on the type of silence. I mean, there's so many different kinds of silence. But, yeah, uh, we we want to become connoisseurs of silence. Mm. Yeah, Thoreau liked silence, right? I know uh, I have a quotation from Henry David Thoreau from 1853 mm. from his uh, notebooks. I wish to hear the silence of the night, but the silence is something positive. And to be heard. And I was wondering if we could put that into um, some conversation with his notion that uh, all men or many men live um, lives of quiet desperation. <laughs> quiet but not uh, silent. I, I think they could be put together. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a sense of silence is a privilege. Mm-hmm. Like darkness is a privilege. Like to mm. really find darkness now, that's a very rare thing. And to mm. and to abide in silence, you know, mm. the Latin silence, to be quiet, the quietness mm. is a, is a rare thing. And the absence of it, you know, like Williams said of the poem, you know, people die daily for absence of of silence. Hmm. Hmm. Hmm of inner silence it makes me think about the class elements of silence because i've lived mostly in poor neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods are rarely quiet and never silent because uh poor people have to live you know five or six to an apartment uh and 
And in order to develop, to create a certain kind of silence, they typically play music at incredible volume. Like when I was in Calcutta, when I was in Tiljala, which was this um, sort of poor suburb of uh, Calcutta, and I was listening to the music blaring out of these uh, loudspeakers near me, kind of distorted by volume, I was thinking, wow, this sounds a lot like the music in my Dominican neighborhood in Washington Heights. It's just like the music of poor people is super loud. And, you know, it's really tough when you're poor to, to find silence, I think. It's my sense. Uh, I remember a uh, cartoon in The New Yorker that I saw several years ago of um, a wealthy couple um, looking at a new apartment, empty apartment. Um, they were walking through some large ballroom, and the caption was, perfect, we can fill it with lots of empty silences right. we can fill it, <laughs> we can fill it with lots of awkward silences that was it oh yeah well now what you were saying sparrow to combine with that is that you're saying that people who are economically disadvantaged tend to use sound to define their space to own the space you play your music mm. Is that what you were saying? Well, I mean, I think I was saying... Because I think, I think rich folk, like you were saying, use silence. They buffer themselves in silence. Mm. You know, that that becomes their boundary or way of marking out space. These mm. exorbitant, mm. stupid lawns, you know, these cut lawns, total right. waste. Or huge lofts. Or, or soundproof, soundproof SUVs. <laughs> dig it yeah and then the cops then they call the cops if somebody makes noise on park avenue and the cops come immediately to like enforce the silence the uh, noise pollution laws which seem to not exist too much in you know east new york but i was just saying that i think possibly really poor people use noise to create silence because when the music is so loud it kind of like, uh, I mean, I suppose we've all had that experience of when you're a teenager, you go to a rock concert, it's incredibly loud. And there's a kind of, first of all, there's a kind of silence to that. Second of all, you leave the concert and your ears are ringing with the silence. It's the most right. silence you've ever heard, really, in your life. At least for me, growing up in Manhattan. It's like a kind of after image like the way that my poems create this after image of silence, or so I imagine, you know, loud music creates this kind of negative result of silence. Uh-huh. Oh, I was going to posit another. I was actually going to talk about Wittgenstein. Can we do that for a sec? Yeah. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I wonder how where Wittgenstein would be on Buck's ratio of... <laughs> Enlightenment. But uh, the, the one thing is another form of silence is the apophatic discourse. Oh, mm. okay. Or discourse on what cannot be said. Right. And, you know, the, the most famous case of that, I believe, in the 20th century, um, you know, comes from Wittgenstein and out of the experience, in part, you know, 
collaborating with the First World War, similar, I believe, to Beckett's collaboration with the Second World War. But the, the statement that Wittgenstein makes at the end of his Tractatus is what we cannot speak about, that of which we cannot speak. We pass over in silence, hmm. is what Wittgenstein concludes is the Tractatus with. Hmm. And then he begins the Tractatus. Now, this is supposed to be a big deal. He begins the Tractatus with, the world is all that is the case. <laughs> hmm. And I guess that somehow this is supposed to be speaking to each other hmm. because what we what we cannot what we can speak about is combinations according to Wittgenstein there are facts and facts are made up of combinations of bringing two things together or some relationship between a number of things combinations and then the objects that make up those combinations hmm. So the statement, the world is all that is the case, hmm. does not fit within, um, within the factual universe, within what we can hmm. speak about. So he begins with that of which we cannot speak. I see. That's interesting. Maybe. I'm not sure. I don't really understand, but <laughs> that's what I heard. You know, I was trying to puzzle it out. Well... Hmm. I'm really into the apophatic tradition, and I, I, I really love the medieval mystics for whom um, silence and darkness, going into the silence, going into darkness, were, were tropes for uh, unio mystica, mystical union. I mean, we see this in pseudo Dionysus and Meister Eichhard and the, the um, anonymous author of the Cloud of Unknowing. Uh, Saint John of the Cross, this this divine silence, this mystical mystical um, trope. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I silence did find is, myself is a threshold, you know, to stepping out of the mind or going beyond mind. Hmm. Hmm. Right. Do, do you guys um actively seek out silence, however you define it? or experience it in your lives, or is it something that's available to you and that you don't have to do much looking for? Because I feel I'm always around noise. Oh, yeah. Living well, you in, live in the city. Living in the city and having a six-year-old daughter and um, <laughs> working a lot. and I, I, It's very rare that I, I find a pocket of silence the only time I do is probably at moments in the liturgy um, in Catholic Mass on Sundays, which I attend. Oh. Mm. I, I like those moments. In the Jewish service, which I go to when I'm in Brooklyn, there's a standing Amidah, the standing meditation prayer, which you can do. You can read all the Hebrew words that are on the page. Or you can just stand there and be silent. That's sort of an option. I think it's an option. Anyway, it's an option I usually take. <laughs> but I usually fill it up with my mantra, actually. My my personal silence. I mean, I don't speak. Did I already say this in one of these podcasts? I don't speak to anyone until 12.01 every day. I mean, I get up sometimes pretty late, like 10. 
or 10.30. But anyway, for like, you know, until a minute after noon, I do not speak, except that I have a voice-activated computer, so I speak to my computer. But, I mean, I don't speak to human beings unless I really have to. You know, sometimes I say to my wife, do you mind chopping these vegetables? Because I have carpal tunnel syndrome, I can't chop, chop them. Or it hurts me to chop them. I mean, but basically I have a morning that's kind of wrapped up in silence. And I live in Phoenicia between a mountain and a, and a creek. So, you know, it's fairly quiet. <laughs> Sparrow, when did you start that ritual of waiting until 1201? That's fascinating. I can't. Re I think maybe because I used to, I spent about 15 years being addicted to Howard Stern. I would listen to Howard Stern every morning. You're a man um, of surprises. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so for year, you know, for a long time. So at some point, I kind and Howard Stern. At first, when I first, I'm so was such an old Howard Stern fan. Actually, he was on originally in the afternoons, but then he switched to the morning. And then at some point, I realized, my God, I'm like colonizing my mind with stupid Howard Stern jokes when at the very moment that I should be applying it to something useful. So I, I started taping Howard Stern, three hours of Howard Stern every day, and then uh, play, started to play it in the afternoon, I guess at 12.01. I think that's when I started my 12.01 practice. You know, I wanted to give it a little extra minute to make sure it wasn't noon so that it didn't get eaten away, you know, then it becomes 11.58, then it becomes 11.57, so it was like 12.01, that's, you know, what, I'll, and I don't even get my email in general, you know, I never, pretty much never get my email, my Twitter, my Facebook before 12.01, so I'm not even polluting my head with uh, this terrible digital noise that we all live with now. Yeah. Silence and darkness are two signs of, um, you know, being in the aristocracy. <laughs> so, Sparrow, you're, uh, you know, you're there. Now, so I wanted to do two, two things. I wanted to first also say this word. I also have the, um, my guns out a little bit for, the, for this other word, presence. So, you know, there's silence, absence, and then this word presence that also came over in the 14th century. I wouldn't be surprised if Wycliffe didn't get his hands on it. Uh, the same, you know, <laughs> old French transfer appearing in the 14th century. And mm -hmm. the word presence means, you know, literally before to be. Mm -hmm. You know, before, that is, to be present, you know, to be before is like a, a more common way of saying it. But being before to be, before being in the presence of mm. being. Mm. Mm. And that's the kind of silence that I think resonates with some of those medieval texts that you've been speaking of, Andrew, and also with the... Uh, Ramdi, Ram, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, Ram, Ramdis, Ramdas, Ra, uh, Bhagavad Gita. The, um, you know, Hare Krishna, all that whole scene. <laughs> yeah. 
those people are very noisy, the Hare Krishnas. They believe that in this Kali Yuga, in this uh, degraded era that we're in, it's impossible to do meditation. So you just have to hop up and down and chant as loud as you can, you know, because you can't still your mind in this uh, terrible Kali Yuga, the, the era that is governed by Kali, the goddess of destruction. So they are pretty noisy. Song and dance. I I apply. That's where I yeah. I, that's where I'm happiest. Yeah, me too. I find. Yeah, the, I mean, I think it's interesting to to posit. I think we're kind of what's the word backing into the idea that there's two basic types of silences: the absence silence. The uh, she's given me the silent treatment. That is the absence silence, or. Uh, I am merging with God, therefore I cannot speak. I am in samadhi. I was just reading this I after. I consider my, all those edgy silences. That's an edgy silence, edgy. along with you know to silence to put to death, and <laughs> to call to silence like to you know cause to impede the capacity to speech, which Aristotle hmm. articulated as being the. The human distinction is that we speak, huh. arguably. Huh. And then there's the other silence, which is the original silence, which is to be quiet, quietness, um, and to just simply not speak. And in fact, this mysterious origin of not to function, hmm. kind of like the silence of Bartleby the Scribner, <laughs> for not to. Mm -hmm. right the uh silence uh i think i disagree with aristotle i think i i would say that humans are the only creatures that can be intentionally silent that can create silence you know in a sense speech implies silence because you have to have little silences between your words otherwise they all sound like one word just like on a page if you don't have gaps between the the words, they all run together, and it's hard to read them. Is that why Sparrow's Susan Sontag described silence as a form of speech? There's a saying, there's a saying uh, if you can't understand my silence, then you can't understand my words. And, oh. and I looked up the pregnant pause. I looked up the definitions of these phrases that we're sort of talking around the edges of pregnant pause according to my american heritage dictionary weighty or significant full of meaning and the example is the conversation occasionally punctuated by pregnant pauses so the idea of silence conveying what cannot be spoken or an awkward silence according to wikipedia is an uncomfortable pause in a conversation Oh, and then I looked up silent but deadly, and then the urban uh, <laughs> the urban dictionary gives a creeper, a floating air biscuit, a fart that cannot be heard but can sure as hell be smelt. Um, so these are ways that uh, silence conveys something that words can't convey or that in a way something similar to what a word conveys. And along those lines, I found this um, really interesting quotation from 
Michel Foucault mm. about the relationship between what isn't said and what is said. It, this, this comes from the first volume of the history of sexuality. Mm. It's somewhat lengthy, about four sentences. I'll read it aloud, and I quote, Silence itself, the thing one declines to say or is mm. forbidden to name, the discretion that is required between different speakers is less the absolute limit of discourse, the other side from which it is separated by a strict boundary, that an element that functions alongside the things said, with them and in relation to them within overall strategies. Mm. There is no binary division to be made between what one says and what one does not say. We must try to determine the different ways of not saying such things, how those who can and those who cannot speak of them are distributed, which type of discourse is authorized, or which form of discretion is required in either case. There is not one but many silences, and they are an integral part of the strategies that underlie and permeate discourses. Silence is, is political. No surprise that Foucault would believe that. How do you mean? Well, I would also say from what you've written, uh, read, that silence is theatrical. Uh huh. Good point. You know that it's that theatrical silence with the parentheses around it. Yeah, the meaningful silence that uh, you know. I found myself thinking about Whitaker Chambers and uh, Alger Hiss. At the beginning of the Red Scare in 1948, Alger Hiss was called a communist by Whitaker Chambers, who was a famous ex-communist. And then the two of them met in uh, the Senate investigating chamber, and the two of them linked eyes. They stared at each other with this meaningful look. And that kind of convinced everyone that Alger Hiss was guilty. But according to Nixon, Richard Nixon, they had been lovers. They had that that silent look of two people who had been lovers. So that's like one way of, that's one message silence can convey. Nice. Yeah. And then I was reading this crazy, I just came upon this uh, article in Inc. INC period, you know, this business magazine. This yeah. is like a kind of how-to business essay. It's called The Science Behind Why Awkward Silence Works. This is like an argument for awkward silence written uh -huh. by this guy named James Sudikow. He says, silence, it isn't just about emotional intelligence and knowing when to just stop talking so that you don't damage relationships with your coworkers. This is planned silence to purposely create blank space in a discussion or facilitated meaning. When used strategically and effectively, it can help generate breakthrough ideas or help you negotiate great deals. This kind of silence is really hard for many of us, myself included. A decade ago, I had my first VP-level job in a pretty big global company. One of my big job responsibilities <laughs> was, to was to facilitate 
top leadership meetings with the C-suite and SVPs related to their leadership team effectiveness, how they functioned as a leadership team through planned and unplanned transformation was going to make or break the outcomes they were trying to achieve. These meetings were frequently challenging in terms of the content we had to put on the table, as well as the personalities and individual politics that existed. I remember after one difficult meeting, I met with my boss for feedback. She was a member of the C-suite and a meeting participant. In her direct way, she told me that I did a good job, but that I talked too much. I was filling the blanks in for people when the conversations got hard. She finished by telling me that I probably didn't like silence very much, but that I needed to get more comfortable with it. She left me with one sentence I've played in my head for years now. So this is this guy's mantra. Yeah, this is his mantra. His mantra is, let there be awkward silence. So, uh, you know, he's like... that he could take he could take that to the grave. That would look good on a tombstone. <laughs> it looked you know, great on a tombstone. Sparrow, you know, Sparrow, that really reminds me of something that Carl Jung wrote. Huh. And Carl Rung, Jung wrote that most people are afraid of silence. Mm-hmm. Hence, whenever the everlasting chit chat at a party suddenly stops, they are impelled to say something, do something, and start mm-hmm. fidgeting. Whistling, humming, coughing, whispering, end quote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Yeah. And it's something we have to learn as um, uh, podcasters. <laughs> How to be silent at times. How to be silent, right? I like the notion of filling in the blank, allowing other people to fill in the blanks and being okay with that. And also I like the idea that like the deepest wisdom can come from uh, business writing, you know, a how to two books about business, because business is life. Life is business. <laughs> so Wycliffe won. What do you mean? <laughs> Wycliffe, the pro, uh, the Oxford Don, the Protestant dissident, the um, what's the word? Um, Hus- the Hussite, the British Hussite, Hussite's followers of Jan Hus. I see. Because he advocated silence, you mean? Well, he was the ringmaster of the, or what do you call it, uh, the uh, of the Lollards. The Lollard controversy, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I remembered that. It was, I didn't have notes. That was something I haven't thought about since, well, I don't know, 2002? Hmm. It's a great phrase, the Lollard controversy. Yeah, lolling around is full of silence. Yeah, I know. It's controversial to just loll around. But I, I did want to give you guys, I did want to shoot off some blanks. Uh-huh. And that is the reading, or I wrote reading forward slash listening list. Mm. And I got to tell you, this course proposal, it's really not bad. And I'm really impressed with myself <laughs> that, I, that I wrote it and, you know, only regret that I didn't get a chance to teach it, but you never know. But yeah. shall I read you this list? Yeah. It's a kind of greatest hits. On the, and then also on the, I want Andrew to finally read the snowman poem. Too. Oh, yeah, I have it right in front of me. Yeah. We'll close with the snowman poem with, with my just saying Beckett, um, you know, got there first. No, but why don't you read your list, Sam? I'm going to read my list. All right. 
So Theodore Adorno, mm. negative dialectics. David Anton, what it means to be avant-garde. Hannah Arendt, mm. metaphor and the ineffable in The Life of the Mind, Volume 1. George Bataille, Principles of Method and of a Community, from his book, Inner Experience. Samuel Beckett, The Unnameable and Texts for Nothing. Walter Benja Benjamin, Theses on History, The Task of the Translator, on language as such, on the language of and on the language of man. Hmm. John Cage, Silence, Lectures and Writing. Jacques Derrida, Edmond Jabez, and the Question of the Book. Martin Heidegger, Language. Edmond Jabez, The Book of Questions, L or the last book. Laura Riding, The Failure of Poetry, The Promise of Language. Franz Kafka, On Parables and The Song of the Sirens. Another interesting, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Stefan Mellame, A Roll of the Dice Will Never Abolish Chance. Charles Olson, The Chiasma and the Special View of History. George Oppen, New Collected Poems. Rilke, Duino Elegies 8 and 9 and Sonnets for, uh, to Orpheus 1. I mean, I can't believe the specificity that's yeah. manifesting here. Like, I really worked it out. Oh, and then I, uh, uh, Schoenberg... I can't read because it's blocked out. Something, Aaron, to Susan Sontag, the aesthetics of, I can't read, the, uh, <laughs> the aesthetics of, of, of Sarah, of Sierra, of <laughs> Spelius, Anton Weber, Six Bagatelles, Hannah Wiener, Clairvoyant Journal. Did you connect with that, Sparrow? Hannah yeah. Wiener, Clairvoyant Journal. Yeah. And Wittgenstein, Lectures on Aesthetics. And then Tractatus 6.1, <laughs> no, 6.4 to 6, uh, 6.7. That's really Wittgenstein. Really wanted to zero in there. Amazing. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm speechless. Uh, I'm speechless. More than anybody could read in a lifetime. <laughs> That's quite an Imagine these text. poor undergraduates. You know, I like, know. These kids that are used to reading Archie all comics. This noise. <laughs> oh, God. So I'm going to close out with The Snowman. All right. And I would suggest that we close out with The Snowman. No more. We No more sign off. Let's hear The Snowman and then uh, sayonara. Depart, depart in silence. Yes. The Snowman by Wallace Stevens, which, by the way, was the, uh, I think, the first Stevens poem that really captivated my imagination. 
in a profound way. The snowman. One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow. It had been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun, and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind and the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land, full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds, nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. And not, and not to, to think, think of any misery in the sound, sound of wind, wind and the, the sound, sound of a few leaves, leaves which, which is the sound of the land, full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener. For the listeners in the snow, who listens in the and snow, nothing, nothing himself, and the whole, nothing himself, nothing, nothing that is nothing not there, that is not and there, nothing that, that is, is. And nothing that is. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.